Hey, all your girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. Before we get started, uh, a couple of quick things. Uh, as of the writing of this show, the Oscars were happening. And as of this recording, the slap heard around the world had uh, transpired. But um, as you know, a lot goes into production of the show. So this was pretty much already set in stone when all that happened. We are planning to have a conversation about it later. So be looking for a bonus episode where we'll talk about the Oscars uh, secondly, talking about um, bonus episodes, uh, in this episode, there's a bonus conversation after the credits that you want to stay after. All right, that's it. Uh, on with the show. You are listening to the Ebony Covering Black America Podcast Network, presented by Walmart. I have no doubt that most of you listening recognize that as the famous 20th Century Fox fanfare. For those of you from my generation, you can't hear that and that also immediately expect to hear this. to open with that clip because this is movie week as i write and record this it's the oscars so i thought it would be fun to explore the role that cinema has played in my personal journey as a black man reconnecting with his blackness other than music no other art form has had as profound an impact on the experience of black americans as movies from how we've been depicted in them over the years, to how we've depicted ourselves in them, even to how we watch them. And funny enough, in many ways, my current journey as a black man started with what was at the time a sort of traumatic incident at Berkeley, which when I would later think back on it was actually pretty funny. So much so that I wanted to make a movie about it which got me into filmmaking, which led me to make a short film, the making of which led to meeting my Dungeons & Durex co-hosts and BFFs, JD and Yolanda. So today, much like the Oscars traveling down memory lane with movie clips and interviews, you are in for a most special treat. You're going to hear some of my earliest podcast conversations with JD and Yolanda from the show I produce, wherein the three of us first began our podcasting adventure, Radio Film School. We'll explore some of my cinematic tastes and whether or not they are problematic as a black man. We'll look at this profound dichotomy in the black community about how we depict ourselves in cinema. And we'll end with my take on a movie I watched for the first time just last week. And in doing so, saved my black card by the skin of its teeth. Now, if I could sing, I might have kicked us off with a musical number, or if I was good at writing stand-up, I might have told a few jokes. But since I'm not good at either of those, I'll just go with Welcome to Dungeons & Durex, one black nerd's epic podcast of self-discovery and racial identity, the Cinephile Edition, or what I like to affectionately call Ron's Gotta Have It. Back in the fall of 2015, I started this podcast called Radio Film School. 
It was very much a progenitor to Dungeons and Durags. Radio Film School was the filmmaking with this podcast is to race politics and pop culture. And in one of the earliest episodes, I tell the story of an experience I had at UC Berkeley that was the inspiration to me becoming a filmmaker. Believe it or not, at one point in my life, I was on the path, however short, to becoming a hip-hop mogul. I know, it's ridiculous. I laugh now even thinking about it. But here's me telling the story back in 2015. It's the rhyme ruler, the mind of the master, the prom poet designed for disaster. The year was 1990, and I was an undergraduate business major at UC Berkeley. The music scene was bustling that year. Wilson Phillips and Invogue both urged you to hold on. Sinead O'Connor let you know that nothing compares to you. Belle Biv DeVoe warned you about that poisonous girl, and ladies with an attitude and fellows that were in the mood were voguing to Madonna's club classic from San Fran to Manhattan. Yeah, music was huge. And 1990 was the beginning of a decade that would be a defining era in hip-hop. Names like Digital Underground, House of Pain, Kid and Play, Criss Cross, Boys to Men, TLC were blowing up the airwaves. And I was this close to becoming the next Rick Rubin or Russell Simmons. And by this close, I mean about as close as Beijing is to Boston. That summer, I embarked upon a business venture, which at the time was a harrowing experience. A defining time in a young, would-be hip-hop mogul's life. It was the summer before my senior year at Berkeley. I had taken a semester off school to work full-time as a financial analyst. By this time, I was earning about $14 an hour. Now, keep in mind that's $1990. Do you know how much money $14 an hour full-time is to a 21-year-old single college guy who lived on $2 Blondie's Pizza and Kellogg's Raisin Brand? It was a lot. I was practically a millionaire. I was also somewhat of a clubber, you know, a dance clubber. I'd go out to dance clubs every weekend and do my thing. I might not look it now, but I was pretty smooth on the dance floor back in my day. One of my fellow clubbers was Biscuit. Now, that's not his real name, but that's what he called himself, as in grab him in the biscuits. Google it. Anyway, how do I describe this guy? Let me see. He was, he was a tall, lanky brother with a really bad jerry girl, like one of those bad conks that where you conk your hair and it doesn't quite look like it's supposed to look. Anyway. His most defining characteristic, though, he, and this is weird, he had a fetish for, he had a fetish for Asian girls, and he would use a fake British accent to pick them up. I kid you not, I can't make this stuff up. Well, now I've seen everything. So one night at a college frat party, <laughs> sorry, I, I swear that was the truth. So one night at a college frat party, all right, I gotta compose myself. So one night. You see, this is what happened. This is the whole tragedy plus time thing. So one night at a college frat party that we had crashed, he introduces me to this young blonde named Stephanie. She was an emancipated minor and had quite a bit of chutzpah for a 16-year-old. They then both introduced me to someone who I'll call Billy D. Now, I call him that because that's who he looked like, or rather that's what he tried to look like. Picture a short Lando Calrissian in a three-piece suit, a cheap three-piece suit. That was Billy D. 
You know those people who are always talking about stuff they got, but you never see any of the stuff they're always talking about that they got? That was this dude. Now, apparently, Billy D and Biscuit had quote-unquote discovered an amazing rap group at Oakland called Shadow Soul, or SOS for short. They needed a management company, and Billy and Biscuit wanted the four of us to be that company. We saw SOS perform at Laura Sproul Plaza later in the week, and they were truly amazing. We were going to be the next Def Jam. Now, take a minute to sit back and imagine this motley crew. You got Biscuit and his fake British accent. You got wannabe Billy D. You got me, the relatively straight-laced business major. And you have Stephanie. Can you not already see the movie forming in your brain? And what do we decide to call our new hip-hop venture? Atlantis Entertainment. What in the world were we thinking? Why didn't we just call it Titanic Entertainment or Hindenburg Beats or something? All those names were harbingers for what was to come. All right, so then I cut to a commercial break in that podcast, and then when I return, I finish the story. Man, I know that I can make it, well, I think, because I see success before my very eyes, but then I blink, but I think that I know just one day that some way I'm going to make it. Sometimes I just don't think that I could take it. They say, yeah, that, that don't kill you, make you stronger. I don't even know where to start when it comes to describing my experiences with this group. I could start with the events of Davidson Hall. That was the dormitory on the Berkeley campus where we and our rat group met with another rat group from Oakland. I don't even really remember why. Anyway, one of the members of our rat group said something that pissed off one of the members of this other rat group, and a fight broke out. Like full-blown gang warfare. I'm talking Crips versus Bloods, East Coast versus West Coast, Jets versus Sharks. I literally thought I was going to die. I remember at the time thinking, I'm not from the hood, I'm a doctor's kid, I'm not properly trained for this. Remember, I was more like a Carlton than a Crip. Luckily, I didn't die. But that fight was just the beginning. One of the biggest problems we had was that Biscuit and Billy D were straight up posers. Billy D acted like he had money, but he didn't, and Biscuit was too busy talking. So all the money for anything we needed came from either me or Stephanie, who was the only other person in our group who actually had a job. Our big day was going to be the unveiling of SOS to the world. We organized a dance to be held in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, where SOS would perform. Let's just say our marketing efforts failed horribly. This was before the days of Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr. This was even before email was a popular thing. We had to make signs on these things called flyers. They were made out of this uh, material called paper. And you'd print a whole bunch of these rectangular flyer things, use this metallic adhesive device called a stapler, and then post the flyers on these thingies all around town called telephone poles. Anyway, we didn't make enough money to pay the DJ or the bouncers that we hired that night, because like only 20 people showed up. Let me just say, you don't want to piss off 6 foot 4 inch guys who look like the mountain from Game of Thrones and sound like Rocky Balboa. So I had to dip into my hard earned money to pay these guys. Due to the stress of dealing with bouncers, battling rappers, and wannabe hip-hop moguls, I started to develop stress-related stomach disorders, basically an ulcer. I, I just had to stop, so I told the group that I was quitting. The last event that I remember us having was a dance to kick off our plans to run our own nightclub. We rented, or rather they rented, a nightclub in the city. The name of the club was Das Club. It was the dance spot in San Francisco during my time at Berkeley. 
Unfortunately, the popularity of the club itself did nothing for the poser's marketing efforts. I think about six people showed up that night. But as I danced the night away on that empty dance floor, I remember being at peace and laughing inside that I was able to evacuate Atlantis before it completely sank into the ocean. Some way I'ma make it. Sometimes I just don't think that I could take it. They say yeah, that that don't kill you, make you stronger. Oh my goodness. Every time I hear or recount that story, it cracks me up. You know, at some point I have to seriously either write a feature script or a television show to tell that full story. I like I, I think it would be golden. So anyway. I would go on to enroll in DeAnza College's film and television program. Now, DeAnza is a community college in Cupertino, California, literally around the corner from Apple's old headquarters. And at the time, they had one of the most celebrated film programs of any college, let alone a community one. JD, who's an alumnus of USC Film School, enjoys making fun of the fact that I have my quote-unquote little degree from DeAnza. Anyway, after a couple of years at Deanza, I got a job at Screenplay Systems, makers of the Movie Magic software. And that is where JD and I met. I knew he was an SC film grad, so I asked if he'd help me shoot and produce a short film I wanted to make. The name of the film was Just Friends. I kind of described it as my black when Harry met Sally. And it was the story of two ex-lovers, not only friends, and a night that they get into an argument when he admits to her that he slept with one of her best friends the day after they had broken up. And as I said in that episode, I can neither confirm nor deny that was based on real experiences. Now, JD was the perfect person for me to collaborate with on this project. Uh, one, he happened to own a really cool camera that I didn't have. And two, um, I didn't have any black friends. So there was that. Uh, in fact, his and Yolanda's friends were all these other actors and filmmakers from SC, most of whom have all gone on to relatively levels of greatness in Hollywood. And a number of them I'm sure you would all recognize. When we get back from the break, you'll hear the comical story of that first time in a long while when I hung around that many black people and how I let a future Marvel star get away. So... On the subsequent episode of Radio Film School, JD and I get into what it was like working on the set of that film. Ron would not let the cross colors go. You were like the last brother I knew to get rid of them cross colors, man. I surprised you remember that too. I, oh, I remember that. That's that's part of your catalog, dude. That was like your Simpsons gear. If they drew you the Simpsons character, you'd have on you'd have a high top fade and some cross colors. Anyway. JD tapped a number of these friends to help us out on the Just Friends shoot, and two of the people that he tapped were actors. Actors who I like to call the ones that got away. That is to say, two of the guys who auditioned for my little film, two people I did not pick, were James LeSure and J. August Richards. James LeSure co-starred with James Caan as Mike Cannon on the show Vegas, and he played Holly Robinson Pete's husband Mike on the show For Your Love. Jay August played the vampire hunter Charles Gunn on WB's Angel and is currently playing Deathlock on Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. As can be expected, JD doesn't let me forget that I passed them up. Brilliant decision, brilliant decision. <laughs> hey, I they think have you're my being sarcastic. No, I'm being for real. I'm being sarcastic <laughs> and real at the same. Brilliant. For the auditions, we were doing sides, and sides are where you, like, you take just a, an excerpt from the script that you 
have during the audition period to have people try out but he hadn't memorized the sides yeah he had t- yeah he had, yeah he came in I, I don't know it wasn't at his apartment i don't, I don't it was at it was, an apartment but not even knowing the lines i thought he did a good job i think it probably rubbed you the wrong way that he didn't take right. the time well, to do the lines but the thing about james he's a hell of an auditioner and i bring up these stories because it's just interesting to see how uh you know people the the little Bit of degrees of separation from people who've gone on to become famous and right how close i was to having like jay august in a film i made or james sure right in a film i made to your point though there is a thing about chemistry and the way jonathan just you know he won that role it wasn't like he lost it or he just gave it away it's like jonathan went in there fought for it and got it so that's right. why he got it you know and that's a good thing uh it keeps the it, 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 it helps keep that relationship with him and you pure and the actress that you know the main actress that he's working with uh uh, Miata, so yeah, I, I think it worked out. You know, it worked out for what it was. But it is funny to look back and like, man, <laughs> you know, Jay, you know, Jay and James on all these shows, you know, doing all this work, and it's like so you know, close. I need to take a moment to share with you how profound a time in my life was making just friends. Besides the obvious of meeting and becoming friends with Jade and Yolanda, it was the first time as an adult when I had hung out with so many black people. The last time I spent that much time around that many black folk outside of family gatherings was elementary school. There was a time in my life, particularly in college and leading up to this moment, when I felt nervous around black people. Not for the reason that most white people do. My reason was that I was usually teased by black people because I sounded and acted quote unquote white. And I was the dude that got all the looks from the sisters because my girlfriend in college at the time was white. So it's no surprise I was also teased on the set of Just Friends. But this time I had an amazing revelation. Everyone on that set would clown each other. In a strange way, being teased actually made me feel loved. This is how I described it in my book. And it was experiencing this unusual camaraderie that allowed me for the first time in my life to be comfortable in my non-blackness. Because you know for damn sure, I too was the butt of many a barb. Whether it was my outdated cross-color shorts and spikely jersey, my penchant for crafting sentences in ways that even white people didn't know could be so confusing and overly complicated, or my embarrassing ignorance of the hottest hip-hop stars of the time. And you know what? I laughed with them. There was a time not too much earlier when being the butt of black folks joke would have sent a still sensitive college student meandering around the campus of UC Berkeley, feeling sorry for myself and raising fists to God, asking why I was such an outcast, not black enough for the blacks and too black for the whites. By this time, besides being just older and wiser, combined with witnessing how these friends express their love for one another in the form of biting repartee, mama jokes, and jabs about jacked up hair, I actually felt love too. If they didn't tease me, I would have been worried. I realized what the secret was. Safety. There was a profound sense that you could be fully and wholly yourself and still be genuinely loved. You felt safe just to be you. That was from my book, and if you haven't already figured it out, the making of this podcast is very much like the set of Just Friends. I'm still the butt of jokes and side eyes. One of the reasons I so appreciate my friendship with Jade and Yolanda is that I can be me. 
and know that the shit that they give me is, in the words of Wesley from A Princess Bride, after getting a miracle pill from Miracle Max. True love, you heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Now, the fact that I would reference a white-ass movie like A Princess Bride and telling this story is another aspect of my journey we need to get out of the closet. It goes without saying that my cinematic taste every now and then raises an issue between me and J.D. and Alana. Our Slack correspondence about whether or not Black Panther should have been nominated for Best Picture is epic. Now, another epic correspondence in our personal canon is a conversation I had with Yolanda about five years ago. At the time, I was managing a filmmaking blog for the company Frame.io, and I interviewed Yolanda to write a blog profile piece about her. And in part of that interview, we get into it about the movie La La Land. When we come back from the break, you'll hear one of my most endearing conversations with Yolanda. One that gives insight into my complicated journey. All right, so here's an excerpt from my conversation with Yo from about five years ago. As someone in, as someone in the industry, see. oh la la land. Okay, I'm going to be completely candid with you about La La Land. I would expect nothing less. As I was watching it, I was like, I have to keep watching this movie to see how ridiculous it continues to be. Why? Like, it was like watching a car wreck. Like, not a car wreck, but like a, like, I was like, are you serious? I was like, why am I watching this? What's ha- Oh, God. <laughs> that was my favorite movie from last year. Here's the thing. I am so conflicted about, I'm not that conflicted. Let me take it back. I'm conflicted. There are things about La La Land that I have a ton of respect for. That opening number was amazing because I know what it took to be able to do that. I know all the things that it required to be able to pull that off on that freeway. All the different things, all the different departments, all of the pre-record, the rehearsal, the photography, the, you know, the, you know, shutting down the freeways, the, the choreography, the, you know, rehearsals, the vehicles, the, oh my God, like pulling that shit off is like crazy town. So I have such enormous respect that they did it, but then I'm just like, this is, I don't care. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous scenario. It's like. What, what specifically is ridiculous? I mean, you keep saying. It's just like. What uh, part is ridiculous? Like, the fact that they fell in love. It's the fact so that she got stylized. The... No, I'm talking, I'm still talking about the open num opening number specifically. I'm like. Well, that's a fantasy scene that didn't really yes in the movie. yes yes but i'm like that's not my cup of tea i guess i'm uh -huh. just like this is why did i just why it's like oh that's cute <laughs> <laughs> like what did i really learn at what story what it's a, it's a musical i understand that what musical has a musical number where you think oh what did i learn from the musical number? just because i don't care i don't maybe musicals aren't my cup of tea but did i'm you like not know it was a musical i figured as much i figured as much but even that even 
having said that, it's just like, mm-hmm. here's, here's my, here's my thing. And maybe why I'm not big on musicals is like, I'm not cool with listening to some fucking music and singing just for the sake of it. Like, if you're going to do it, advance the story. Like all they did was, you know, dance and sing about being on the freeway in LA. That had nothing to do with any of the story. It didn't advance the story. How long did that number take? It took it's about re- four and a half minutes, and it, it was ridiculous. It set, it set, this it set, <laughs> it set the story up. The whole song is about coming out to Hollywood and making it. I mean, they're telling, yeah, her yeah. story. I, I mean, know. the song is about her story. I mean, she came I out know. from what? I what was it? Arizona or Nevada? I can't. I just that's not me. And no, but so, you're saying okay. it didn't advance the story, but I'm saying this, it was setting up what the story is about. Yeah. I'll give it that. Yeah. And I, and like I said, I have a ton of respect for it, right. for what was required to make that happen. Oh, and on top of it, yeah. it was this throwback to this era of when America was great like, in a time frame of the freaking election period of making America great again. And part of the article that I that I read was about how ironic it is that in liberal la la land you know hollywood and the liberal uh-huh. you know artists that they all are finding solace and greatness in this hearkening back to to an age of when everything was so freaking great when women had no rights blacks had no rights you know it's like yeah <laughs> why are we all taking so much you know glee over this it was just, uh, I just wanted to just like, uh, I really, I was not happy with that movie at all. Now, that's an interesting look about the era that it harkens back to. I mean, that almost sounds like the person is saying. Of when musicals were being made, and even I, it was stylistically made during the, how those style was during that time frame. But the styles in and of themselves were not oppressive to no, they weren't, but they were so done that, in the time mean, frame of when that kind of shit was going on, so including in Los Angeles to a high degree in Los Angeles. So it sound, that sounds like the person and maybe even you are saying art from any period of time where there was oppression can't be appreciated because it happened during a time when there was oppression. No, but it, that's it's, what he's saying. He's saying no. There's, but there was so much. To, there's so much nostalgia about it, and like the people, Ron. A lot of a lot of the accolades and a lot of the people who, you know, espouse what they loved about it. A lot of what they said directly was, "Oh, it reminds me when," or "It makes me feel like when back when." Blah 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 blah. Right. But is it possible they were saying it reminds me when... What was going on? It's like that's a sugar-coated view of what was going on then. It's like, yeah, what was going on then was really great for some people. (laughs) (laughs) Not so much for everybody else. That is true. That is true. But I mean, I will say this: I have a I have a tremendous amount of respect for right, Damien Chazelle. I think he's very talented. I thought Whiplash was amazing. 
could easily have gotten best picture i think he did an excellent job with la la land it just was not my cup of tea and i had a lot of issues with it i mean i was in a certain mood when that movie came out but the climate that existed when it was released in the public discourse it put me in a place mentally when I watched it. I was just like, "Am I supposed to be romanticized about this?" Like, so and 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 on top of the fact that it was not, it was the cast was casting wasn't very diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, those group of girls that she lived with, and they come out and do their little number. <laughs> it reminded me of freaking 1950s and 60s. I didn't want to be reminded of that shit when the time that it came out. I was very not happy mm-hmm. about what was going on in our country when that movie was released. And it reminded me of a time that everybody who was running around talking about Make America Great Again, they wanted to get back to something that looked like that. Ah. So like the therapist in a session, we're getting down to the nitty gritty of your yeah. issues with this movie. Yeah, I, I will readily admit it. Yeah. I, I even said I was having comments with friends while I was watching. It's like, I am not in the mood to see this. <laughs> Seriously. No, I totally Seriously. believe it. Yeah. I totally yeah. believe it. Yeah. Um, so I fully, I will own that. I recognize that. So yes, I like the movie La La Land. But I don't want you all coming away from this thinking all of my cinematic indulgences are vanilla. In the early years of my aspiring filmmaking career, Spike Lee was my hero. I read all of his filmmaking books and I count Do the Right Thing as one of the five most influential movies in my own style as a filmmaker. And when it comes to the flavor of black films that I gravitate to, I'm much more of a Spike Lee kind of guy than a Tyler Perry guy. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with their legendary rivalry. Spike feeling like the Medea and other Tyler Perry films were, as he described it in the past, buffoonery. And Perry had no qualms stating his thoughts, like he did on this press junket for Medea's Big Happy Family. Let me just say this about Spike or anybody else, all the critics, anybody else. It's only black people that do this to each other. I have never seen Jewish people complaining about Seinfeld. I've never seen Italian people complaining about The Sopranos. It's only us as Negroes that do this to each other. It's And I can't fix it. Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois did it. You know, uh, Langston Hughes said that Zora Neale Hurston was a new version of the darker. This woman wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God. She spoke from a Southern point of view. Here uh, Langston is in New York with his Harlem slickness, and he couldn't understand it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. I speak from the South. People love it. Why in the hell would I sit here worried about Spike Lee? Now, even though my cinematic tastes in general don't tend towards Tyler Perry films, I got to admit, I do like watching clips of Medea. I mean, she is hella funny. So I could watch YouTube clips of her probably all day long. But generally speaking, Tyler Perry films aren't normally my cup of tea. That being said, I really appreciate his comment. I can't help but think of our own crabs in a barrel episode. Tyler's comments were spot on. Why do black people do that to one another? I guess that goes to the heart of the whole crabs in a barrel mentality in the first place, right? But it was this mindset of some black movies that kept me from watching a movie that most black folk would say is a bare minimum requirement to having a black card. I know you don't smoke weed. I know this. 
but I'm gonna get you high today. Cause it's Friday, you ain't got no job, and you ain't got shit to do. That, of course, was one of the most iconic lines from the 1995 F. Gary Gray directed film, Friday, co-written by a one Ice Cube. Now, at the time this film came out, it was not at all on my radar. This was a blackity black film, and at the time, I was just going to say it, I had a very white way of looking at the world. The only films from the quote-unquote hood I was interested in were critically acclaimed ones that showed the plight of violence in urban areas. So you know, movies like Menace to Society and of course, Boys in the Hood. Now, to be fair, a big part of the reason I liked those movies was because of the filmmakers themselves were critically acclaimed. Directors like John Singleton, May He Rest in Peace, and the Hughes Brothers were all over the news for their breakout hits. I was also into movies like Boomerang, House Party, and of course, anything that Spike had put out. I just didn't relate or connect to a film like Friday. I also had a sense that Friday was a movie that had what Spike would describe as negative imagery of black folk. But there's no denying, this is a movie that a large percentage of black people in America love. And it was about time that I take care of this blind spot in my movie watching repertoire. Oh, they was clowning you at work today, man. So what? I saw the tape. We kept rewinding it. Kind of looked like you were here, but you can't really tell from the back. How you at? Oh, it's cool. Damn! As I was watching the movie, I got a call from Virginia, the woman I'm dating, who just happens to be Chinese. And even she was giving me a hard time for not having seen Friday. And it all started because we were having one of our own comical discussions about it. Are you saying I'm bougie? Is that what you're saying? If that is the same for white, yeah. No, bougie is not, bougie is short for bourgeois. It's like I, a stuck up. I know what bougie means, but I'm saying if that's the way you describe also being white, <laughs> yes. How do you know what bougie means? Did you because see it? Friday. Did you see it? <laughs> And then she raised her hand to the phone on FaceTime as if to say, bye, Felicia. But then she started laughing at me because I didn't make the connection at the time that the term bye, Felicia, which I actually heard a gazillion times, actually has its origins in Friday. Bye, Felicia. So I recorded the phone call I had with her so you guys can hear it. Now, naturally, we weren't on Zoom when she called, so I had to record her audio on my computer by putting the phone by the computer speaker. So I apologize for the poor quality, but you'll be able to hear it. The thing is, babe, you talk about being black and black culture, and most black people and non-black people know Friday and have heard this term from that movie. I know the term. Yeah, but... It's funny that you have never, you didn't understand where it came from. Oh, uh, well now I do. You've enlightened. Yeah, because in 1995, you didn't happen to watch the movie when it came out, like everyone else did. Like everyone? Because you were probably swing dancing <laughs> and didn't have time to go to the movies to watch black people on the screen when there were no not many black people. Uh, for the record. The black person that was on the screen and you were out swing dancing. For the record, I didn't start swing dancing until 97, for one. Okay. So instead, you're in your 
business rat. In your business rat. <laughs> I was probably really just working on my other film-related projects. Okay. There was a particular type of film that I liked to watch, like, by black filmmakers. Like, so, like, Spike Lee. I liked, um... Uh, I actually liked the Helen Brothers. Like, I liked House Party. And... What's, what's so funny? Nothing. Why, why is that funny? I'm, I'm just laughing at you. No, I, I know you are, but what, what was funny about that? Nothing. I think House Party was made for a broad audience. You don't think that was made, that had a black audience in mind? No, it probably did, but I still feel like it was made for a broader, uh, like, larger appeal. Okay. Like, why do the movies that are geared towards black people always have us... Acting like fools. You know, none of Spike Lee's movies did. I mean, that's actually, I think, one of the issues he had with a lot of black filmmakers. Maybe they were trying to show, well, in a maybe funny way, like... I, I don't remember all the ins and outs, because I probably watched it when it first came out. Right. Um, some people. <laughs> so I would have to rewatch it again. But maybe they were just trying to show, like, another side of life, you know? No, I can see that. And so... Let's take... Here's a good example. I did see Menace to Society, for instance, about a, a, a side of life and also saw, you know, Boys in the Hood, for you know, as a matter of fact. I don't feel like Boys in the Hood was more PG. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as hard as, like, Menace. From what I recall, I even remember there were some people who felt like Boys in the Hood was kind of very, very tame. That's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like Friday, even though it was a comedy, like, more comedic type, you know, like, it was maybe trying to show some of that. Right, but here's, but here's what I was saying. When, about Menace, movies like Menace or Boys in the Hood, they showed the same life, but they showed it in a realistic way. And I when I watch Menace to Society, no one in there looks like a coon. But it's showing a side of black culture that a lot of people didn't get a taste of. Menace Society wasn't meant to be a comedy. True. But uh, House Party was. Uh, Boomerang was. Boomerang was a movie in which all the black people in there are successful. That is not what Ice Cube was trying to show. I understand that. I totally get that. He's not going to be writing about being in whatever industry and... Being in the whatever, I forgot what all their jobs were. Right. Like he was, his was about like street life. Right. In some ways, it's like the black version of like, what is that? Kumar, Harold and Kumar, or like other stupid, like silly movies, movies right? Like that. Here's what I think, and here's what I feel. I was answering you why I didn't see it when it came out. It came out during a time when I had a different mindset in terms of how I thought about life and how I thought about things. I wasn't as connected to the black community. As someone who was early in my filmmaking journey, it wasn't the kind of movie that was on my radar as a film to watch if you are an aspiring filmmaker. And so, as a black filmmaker, I did look up to filmmakers like, you know, Spike Lee and the Helen Brothers. And I think 
And then listening to their interviews, or Spike, maybe Spike specifically, you know, one of the issues he had with movies like that was because they portrayed black people in a way that to non-black people looked kind of like sustained negative stereotypes. So I feel like Friday is the kind of movie like with a black audience who can understand that not all black people are like that. It's cool. And a mixed audience, we have a bunch of white people and non-white people and non-black people who might see it and think, oh, that's how black people are. Most everyone I knew liked Friday. And Did, uh, were these friends black or white? Or were they not or were they white or non white? Non white. Like the black friends I had liked the movie. Right. I'm liking the movie. The point I'm making is it makes sense that someone like you who's who understands the nuances of culture, someone like your non white friends can like you and your friends could see a movie like Friday and not assign those stereotypes to all black people. A lot of white people would look at Friday and it would just uphold their stereotypes of black people, either consciously or, or unconsciously. Let me finish it and then I'm gonna report back to you my uh, review. But it is admittedly funny and par for the course on this show that my Chinese girlfriend knew the origin of the term by Felicia and I didn't. But here's the thing. I was pleasantly surprised by the movie and it didn't really turn out how I thought. Here is the hot take I recorded on my iPhone after watching it. Hey, this is Ron, obviously. And I'm um, recording on my iPhone because I wanted to do a quick hot take on Friday. If I was a real professional podcaster, I would hop on and set up my mic system and all that, but I'm not going to do all that right now. Anyway, uh, I like the movie. Not having seen it, I had an impression that the whole thing would be a bunch of buffoonery. And there was a little bit of that in the beginning, but I kind of felt like most of the film was pretty level in terms of the representation of um, people who lived in that neighborhood. Uh, I didn't feel like it went above and beyond in terms of having stereotypes. I mean, I still think it's the kind of film that could uh, enforce negative stereotypes that uh, some non-black people, i.e. white, may have of black people, whether or not that is um, good or bad or even justified. But I do think, aside for some of the early scenes in the movie uh you know particularly the scene with john witherspoon in the morning in the bathroom uh it's a little problematic it was funny though <laughs> john witherspoon he's funny I, i'm not gonna lie but his uh speech to uh craig as cube's character a little bit later about what it takes to be a man using your fist versus a gun. You know, I thought that was cool. The Debo character, he he scared the shit out of me. Cause <laughs> I actually knew people that scary, believe it or not, when I was a kid. Or maybe they just seemed that scary to me when I was that young. But, uh, you know, I remember being bullied when I lived in Altadena. And 
one of the bullies had this big tough guy as his henchman who would uh, sort of like do his bidding. And so uh, I was, I wouldn't say I was triggered, but uh, the Devo character definitely kind of got under my skin. All that to say, um, I felt like the movie was funny. Uh, I enjoyed it. I felt it was like a fun look at some, you know, dark stuff that happens in that neighborhood. I could see people coming from that area where drive-bys are a real thing. And, you know, the scene where there's a drive-by on Cube and Chris Tucker. And another movie was scary. It was made, played for comedy. But I think it was a way for, I don't know, a way for the black community to uh, probably some needed levity for a time where that kind of thing back then and even now still happens and is scary and it was probably something where we needed to look at it and laugh at it and take the power away from it while still addressing the seriousness of it. All joking aside, whether or not a 50-plus-year-old black man has seen Friday or the two sequels, Next Friday and Friday After Next, doesn't determine how quote-unquote black they are. And the long list of prerequisites for owning a black card, aside from, you know, being black, seeing a nearly 30-year-old silly comedy would fall way on the list. Or perhaps it should. However, having said that, I do recognize the power of cinema to instill pride in our community. Whether it's a film that makes us feel seen or one that allows us to see ourselves in a way we don't normally get to, cinema has always and probably will continue to be a profound way to build us up and inspire future generations. And while I don't think not having seen Friday makes someone less black, I do think there's a special bond we share when we can connect with cultural touchstones that are based in our roots and experiences as black people in America and even the world. So wherever you fall on the Spike Lee to Tyler Perry spectrum with regards to your thoughts and feelings about black cinema, I encourage you to step out of your comfort zone, perhaps embrace a form of the art you may not have before, and don't be afraid to speak your mind and live your truth. And if anyone questions your blackness because of what you have or haven't seen, in the words of Medea and Tyler Perry, I will punch the hell out of you, say something else. Go to hell. And that's the double truth, Ruth. Remember, stay after the credits for a funny post-credit conversation. The Dungeons and Durex podcast is a production of Blade Runner Media and Bonnie and Clyde Productions and is part of the Ebony Covering Black America podcast network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Ron Dawson. Special thanks to my black BFFs and podcast peeps, JD and Yolanda Cochran. No relation to Johnny. JD creates and edits our social media audiograms. Music used in the show was licensed from Artlist as well as Creative Commons songs from FeeMusicArchive.org. All the television, film, and YouTube clips are copyrighted of their respective parties. Check our show notes for our statement on fair use. If you like the show, do all the podcasty things. You know, rate, review, share with your friends and family. And let us know what you think of the show. 
And let us know if you saw the movie Friday. What did you think of it? Shoot us an email at podcast at dungeonsanddurags.com. You can even send us a voicemail message on our website at dungeonsanddurags.com slash podcast. Or if you leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts with your thoughts or stories, we just may read it on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Ron Dawson and on Instagram at Blurred Runner. I write about race, religion, creative arts, and business on Medium at rondawson.medium.com. You can follow JD on Twitter at thatjdcochran, and Yolanda is rat in a wheel with all the words separated by underscores. That's it for now. Stay safe out there, and remember, having white privilege is not bad. Denying it is, and in the absence of biblical certainty, choose love. See you in two weeks. All right. Earlier, I played clips from the Radio Film School episode where I shared how I first got into filmmaking. Now, the post-credits bonus of that episode is the one I'm going to play for you now. It's when I pitched an idea to JD for a podcast segment that had a rather unique premise. Enjoy. I want to run this idea by you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Know. Sorry. What? Why are you laughing? Because I'm curious to think what you're going to think about it. Okay. All right. So, so you know, the show is going to have different segments, right? Yeah. Okay. So, one of the segments is going to be how to be a black filmmaker in the 90s. Oh, my God. I don't know. Why? why I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know. What, what makes you, uh, <laughs> what's the appeal of that? Why is it so funny? <laughs> I don't know. Because it's all right. So the, the answer to your first question to the the appeal is because a lot of the stories we've been talking about was like go back to like what got me thinking about it was when you were like teasing me about wearing cross colors when we were yeah. talking last time. Mm-hmm. And so like the show is gonna have different aspects. So there's like the main crux, which is cinematic, which is like developing your signature style and there will be like war stories will be one segment and then movie memories and all the interviews that i do with guests you know one interview might have have excerpts that will go into each segment so uh a lot of the conversation that you and i've had so far have harkened back to like when i was first starting out and when we did stuff together and you know some of the you know the crazy antics we went through as we were doing our stuff and it reminded me of a um a blog post i did a couple years ago uh, a satirical blog post i did for um uh you know like black history month called mm-hmm. how to be how to be a black filmmaker and it was it was basically like a satire on stereotypes of what it means to be a quote-unquote black filmmaker um so after our conversation last time, I was thinking to have a funny segment about how to be a black filmmaker in the 90s. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's just a segment, right? You're not like... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's not the whole show. It's a segment. <laughs> I was like, damn, man. It's a whole... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It, no, so like... And I haven't 100% figured out like how, how the logistics are going to work. But like each episode 
like the 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 core of the show, the cinematic core of the show, where I'm on this journey to find out what it means to have a signature style. That would be like the bulk of every episode, and then towards the end, there will be like a short segment about movie memories where people will talk about um, like their earliest childhood memories from movies, and then every now and then we'll have a segment like the war story segment, um, and then and then you know this how to be a black filmmaker segment. But all these segments would be. You know, some of them may be in the middle. So, like, the movie memory ones may be kind of, like, spiced throughout the middle, like little commercials to kind of break up the, the main piece. And the war stories one may be towards the end, or maybe there'll be a large chunk of one. And these, you know, how to be a black film like in the 90s, will most likely be, like, post-credits, like, or excerpt, excerpts from our conversations will be in the main parts. But when we're, like, when we're specifically talking about some of the some of our onset antics or some of the experiences we had, or we're talking about, you know, some of the things that kind of, that I think fit into that category. Right. It'll be in that segment. And that segment will usually be saved towards the end. That's sort of like a bonus segment. Like, you know, you stay past the credits, you can hear this funny story about basically like a funny anecdote about, you know, when I was first starting out. Right. I don't even know if that's necessarily being a black filmmaker in the nineties though. Cause it's all about marketing, of- dude. I know it's not about being a black filmmaker, but I'm, I'm talking about the stuff that specifically retains to like the cultural aspect of. Because, like, for instance, when you and I were talking about acting and you were making the comment about, you know, a director telling an actor what to do, like, that's not that's not a conversation I would put in that segment. But like when we were talking about like clowning on the set or if we we're talking about maybe specific um, challenges that, you know, I may have had or we may have had as, you know, you know, African-Americans of color or people of color, or if we're talking about, you know, you know, Spike Lee's movies back then, stuff like that, something that's really mm-hmm. specific or germane to that topic. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds cool. Um, <laughs> I don't have any, I don't have any, I mean, use it however you want. I just don't know if I, if my mind would be capable of, you know, week in, week out. Okay. Here's what it is to be a black filmmaker in the nineties. No. When I first came to like you and Yolanda about the idea you were doing this too, like, like don't put so much specificity like into like the titles or anything. So it's not like okay, every time we talk, you need to speak to that. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not what it's about. It's like we're gonna talk about whatever. Like, Ron, I just came from Al Sharpton's and we were marching <laughs> about black filmmakers back. In, I was recalling the time we went to Birmingham to speak on black filmmaking. <laughs> So I hear what you're saying, <laughs> but you ask those open ass into questions like, "Hey, Chady, is there racism in Hollywood?" <laughs> Answer, respond any way you like. <laughs> then I go on a 50 minute diatribe. <laughs> but to the extent that they go into topics that kind of relate to that 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 um, cultural aspect, because because filmmaking is personal, right? And so when you have something as personal as your cultural perspective on something, it's going to be seen, uh, uh, a lot of times it's going to be seen in your artwork and, or issues you have with regards to, you know, you know, making it in this business as it relates to your race is going to be seen in this artwork. And and you think about satires, like, you know, the kind of stuff that like the, the wines do, um, um, the Wayans. The Wayans, right? Sorry. <laughs> I was like, BB and CC Wayans? <laughs> right. They're in the filmmaking now? <laughs> right, no. Not the gospel singers, the Wayans. Is it Wayans or Wines? 
Wayans. 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 Yeah. So the way the ones that the Wayans do, and or we think about like Hollywood Shuffle, which was you know in the '90s. You know, those were satires that, like, you didn't have to be black to watch those and appreciate them and laugh at them, right? And even, and so that's the kind of thing. It's like when people are seeing, like, I want this show to be more than just the traditional interview uh, podcast because there's so many of those, and I've already done that, and I don't want to do it again. Right, right. So, you know, I just thought it was a fun segment. Yeah, Um, I'm I'm cool with it. I mean, um, I have have a feeling that you'll have ample material to... (laughs) Right. Kind of plug yeah. in there or whatever. 